So when I was uh, in elementary school, both of my dad's parents died within about two years. And they lived across town in a much safer, nicer neighborhood, so we moved into their house. And in their basement stood a piece of furniture that did not move for about 15 years. It was a massive record player. And I was introduced to all sorts of music through that record player. I learned to love music from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, all through that record player. But there's something really annoying that can happen with records when they get a scratch on them. The needle will be going, and you'll be in the middle of the song, and it will just start saying the word over and over and over and over and over and over. And it gets really annoying. Thus was birthed the phrase, you sound like a what? A broken record. In our day and age, we really don't like repetition. If somebody comes to you and asks the same question over and over and over, you would start saying, stop talking, because it gets under our skin. Repetition is not something we just naturally like. Do you realize the scriptures are repetitious? The scriptures don't really care whether we like it or not. They say the same thing over and over and over and over. We're coming to a section in 1 John about, guess what? Love. And if you've been with us thus far, you have found that we have been introduced to this topic in chapter 2, in chapter 3, again in chapter 3, again in chapter 3, and again in chapter 3. And for us, the temptation is to hear about a topic and say, yeah, I know that. I don't need to hear that again and move on to something else. And John says, no, 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 no. Though we know the topic, we can never graduate from hearing about it. This is something that's so unnatural to us, to love each other with selfless, sacrificial love, that John's like, oh, by the way, love each other. Oh, by the way, love each other. Hey, I don't know if I've said it yet, but love each other. Unless you think it's a broken record yet, we are now coming to the densest section in all of Scripture with commands to love. In 14 verses, 29 times, from verse 7 to verse 21, he's going to mention love. So the record is just starting to break. Love one another. So with that said, let's jump right in to reading the passage. Verse 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might love, live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Our main point today is going to be this. Put God's nature on display by loving one another. Put God's nature on display 
by loving one another. And if you take notes, kind of where we're going this morning is three different points. Verse 7 and 8, we'll see love one another because God is love. So each of our main points is going to be love one another because. Here's a reason. First reason in verse 7 and 8, God is love. Second reason, verse 9 and 10, love one another because God loves you. Love one another because God loves you. And third, love one another because it displays God. So love each other. Why? Three reasons. God is love. He loves you. And when we love each other, we show each other God's love. We put it on display. If you've just been joining us or you missed last week, last week we took a break from love one another. And we started chapter 4 with a paragraph that calls us to discernment. There are many false teachers who have gone out in the world, so John says not everybody that says Jesus and quotes Bible is preaching truth. So we have to test and not believe everything. We have to go back to the scriptures for discernment. So he stopped talking about love, he talked about discernment, and now he's back to love. So with that in mind, <clears throat> verse 7 and 8, love one another because God is love. First in verse 7, we see that God is the source of love. But before we look at verse 7, my question is, why another command about love, and why here? Well, I think it, it's important to understand the context. John has just told us, be discerning. Be discerning. And you remember last week, if you were here, we quoted from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 2, where there's the church in Ephesus, and Jesus comes to them, and he commends them. He says, one thing I can commend about you is there are people coming in saying they're apostles, and you have tested them and found them to be false. You've not compromised on truth. You know your Bible, and you stand on your Bible. But what we didn't quote last week was how the rest of the passage goes. He says, good job. You know truth. You stand on truth. Yet this one thing I have against you, you have forsaken your first love. The question becomes, is it love for God or love for people? And most theologians say, what's the difference? You can't separate the two. These people are so focused on truth, but they're heartless. They know their Bibles, but their Bibles haven't warmed their hearts towards God or each other. So there is a danger in having a lot of theological knowledge and not having a heart of love. So John is trying to say, hold to truth, but don't hold it unlovingly. Hold to truth. Don't compromise. Know what's right. Know what's wrong. But in your holding of truth, do not become harsh. Do not become arrogant. Do not become self-righteous. Love one another and love truth. Love truth and love one another. We need those two always in balance. If we just say, let's love each other, let's love each other, and we don't anchor it in truth, we become sentimental. And we just talk about love, and I feel love, and it has no basis. But if we're just all truth, all truth, all truth, we become harsh and prickly. And what John is saying is, 
You can't separate the two. Love should be fueled by truth. And truth is the basis of love. We need both. So what John is doing here is in the context saying, hold the truth, don't forget love. So with that in mind, verse 7, God is the source of love. Love is from God. Notice what he says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. We're going to say this a couple times this morning. If, if you've been with us, we're just going to kind of quickly review. Love one another is not just a command to love everybody, though the Bible commands us to love everybody. This is a specific command, to love Christians. The one another here is believers. Love one another. Christian, love Christian. Love the person sitting behind you, next to you, and in front of you, and across the room from you. Love one another. And now we find why. For love is from God. Love originates. The source of love is from God. My wife and I in New York went hiking all the time because we lived about an hour away from some beautiful mountains. And we had done this hike once, and I was very confident that I knew where this this uh, stream was that the DEC approved drinking from. And I was like, let's just guzzle our water, and we'll do this nine-mile hike. We'll get some nice, natural, cold spring water. And I was convinced it was actually on the end of that hike, but it was at the beginning. So we guzzled all this water, and by the time we got back to where the, the thing was, it, it was hot, and we were really thirsty. And we found that spring, and we drank about a gallon of water. Now, we drank it because we knew the source was good. If you know anything about just water out everywhere, you wouldn't just drink water from anywhere, because if you drink some bad water, you could get really kind of, like, bad kind of sick. We knew it was a good source. It came from something that had been approved as good and clean and pure. So we drank. For us to know love, we have to know that it comes from the right source. We have to go to the right source. Because everybody today talks about love. Just turn your TV on. Listen to the news. Listen to a political discussion. And they all want to talk about love. But not all that they label love is love. So where does it come from? Where do we find it? What's the source of it? And this text tells us, love is from within your heart. Love is from the world. No, it says love is from God. It doesn't originate by unlocking your inner loving self. It doesn't originate from the philosophies of the world. It has one fountainhead, and it is God himself. Love is from God. Uh, and any love is what John is going to talk about that radiates from us to each other is because we have been connected to the source. Notice what he says in the rest of verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We'll deal with that second part in a moment, but notice what he's saying. God is the source of love. And we've been saying throughout this series in 1 John that Christian love, love towards brothers and sisters, is so unnatural to us in our flesh 
that if we love one another, it's an evidence that there has been a supernatural work of God in our life. That we have been born again. That's how he words it here. He says, has been born of God. Love is not the source of our new birth, but new birth results in love. And he says the opposite, the beginning of verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. There are a lot of things that the church and in the name of the church have been done that have harmed people. And those things should not be taken lightly, swept under the rug. The Lord will deal with those things. But I don't want to blunt the force of this text. He says if we love God and know God, we will love his children. We'll love those whom he loves. We'll love the redeemed. So God is the source of love. And then we come to this three-word statement that even if you've never read the Bible, I'm sure you've heard before. God is love. God is the source of love, but secondly, in verse 8, we see God is the definition of love. God is love. Here is the standard, the definition. See, we say everybody today talks about love, 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 but we're all using a different dictionary. We're all defining it differently. So how do we define what love is? And John says, God. What he doesn't say here is that love is God. And that's how we often define it in our culture today. What I think is love is ultimate. What I think feels loving is ultimate. My conception of love is ultimate. But here he flips it and he says, God is love. God is, in his essence, love. Love is not just merely a concept or a mere feeling or just an act that we do. Love is a knowable, personal being. God himself, he is love. Where we go to define love matters. The source matters. God is love. Just for a moment, I want to dip our toes into just a theological concept that's important. Because we often think about God's attributes as these separated components of him. Like he's made up of parts. He's got the love part and the holiness part. He's got, the, he's got the part of him of wisdom, and he's got the part of him that is, that is just. And these things are all separated. God is not made up of parts. God is not constructed like we are. I have a liver, I have teeth, I have fingers, right? I can still be Bill Deckard if my finger's gone. I can still be Bill Deckard if my teeth all fell out, because I'm made up of parts. God is not like us. He's not made up of parts. His attributes are who he is. And there is no separation of them in his being. You say, well, that just sounds like a bunch of theological nerd stuff. Well, it is a little bit. But here's why it matters. Just think about his attributes, how they cannot be separated. God is just, and he's loving. His justice is loving. And his love is just. He loves what is right. Therefore, he executes justice on what's wrong. 
But when he loves people, he doesn't just say, I feel loving today so I can excuse your sin. The love he pours out on you is just. He's dealt with sin at the cross. His love is just. His justice is loving. God is infinite. He's he's unfathomable. But he's also loving. And his love is infinite. It's bottomless. Why? Because you can't separate him. Everything he is is who he is. He's infinitely loving. We sing the song, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's like the song is saying if you took all the water in the ocean and it was ink, you would drain it dry before you plumbed the depth of his love. And if all that sky up there that you look at was a big piece of paper and we wrote about God's love, it wouldn't have enough room. Why? Because he's not loving, and over here sometimes he's infinite, he's infinitely loving. God is unchanging. And he's loving. He's not unchanging sometimes, and loving sometimes, he's unchanging in his love. You realize, let's put those together. He is justly loving, infinitely loving, unchangeably loving. Why? Because he is his attributes. So this text is saying God is love. That's who he is. And that doesn't mean that he's not light that we read about in John chapter 1, verse 5. He is light and love. When? All the time. He is his attributes. God didn't start loving when the world was created. Like it's just some act. It's who he is. He has been loving before creation ever existed. Why? Because God is triune. There's one God, three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, have eternally been in a relationship of love before the world was created. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, you have loved me from before creation. Love just spilled out into creation because that's who God is, always has been, and always will be. Why? Because He is unchanging, unchangeably loving. That's good news for us. God is love. Why should we love each other? Because God's the source of love, and he is the definition of love. He sets the standard. That's where we go when we say, what is love? We don't go anywhere else but to God, because he's the fountainhead of it, and he is love. He's not just loving, he is love. Second point, love one another because God loves you. You say, Bill, I'm hearing you talk about God is love. He's the source of love. But how do I know that? God God can just say, I'm love. Well, how do I know he's loving? Where do we see an example of his love? Where is there proof that he is loving? And John does what he's done throughout 1 John. He says, look no further than Jesus Christ himself. Verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, we see that God demonstrates his love to you by giving the greatest gift. He says in verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed. It was shown to us, made visible among us. That God sent his only 
son. Now here's where we got to go back to last week. If we get Jesus wrong, we strip this text of all of its magnitude and value. If we say Jesus is just a, a person like you and I, or he's a created being like you and I, you lose the force of God sent his son. If Jesus isn't really in, coming in the world in flesh, we lose the force of the, the power of the one he has sent. It's only in preserving, verses 1 through 6, a right view of Jesus, that he is God, the second person who took on flesh, that we understand when he says, I gave my only son, that he gave the best gift you could ever imagine. He gave his son. And he doesn't just say he gave his son, he gave his only son. You and I are sons and daughters, true sons and daughters of God by faith. But we're not sons and daughters by essence. He adopts us in as real children. But Jesus is the Son of God by his very nature. He is the same essence and substance as the Father. He is the one and only unique Son of God. There's none like him in all the world. He's the one the angels have worshipped since the moment of their creation. He is the one who created all things and who all things exist for him. And that's the one the Father willingly, voluntarily sent into this rebellious world. There is no way that my words could paint the beauty of this picture that God sent his only son into the world. My favorite theologian ever, a Puritan named John Flavel, said this, 10,000 worlds and all the glory of them are but dust in the balance when compared to the only son. There is nothing like Jesus anywhere, ever. And that's who God gave for you. Where do I find love? How do I know that this God in heaven is love? He gave his only son. But we end verse 9 with it just saying he gave his only son so that we might live. Well, what did the son do that showed the love? I mean, just, so he stepped into the world. Great. Thanks for coming. What did he do when he came? Verse 10. God's love is demonstrated in meeting your most pressing need. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. Oh, that is good news. The good news is not, hey, you need to love. And if you love enough, God will look and say, that's one I can love. He's a loving guy or she's a loving gal. I'll love them now. There's no good news in that kind of message. Because guess what? I'm always going to be wondering, did I love enough? Did I do enough loving acts? Am I genuine enough in my love for him to love me now? The, the good news is not be more moralistic and try and love better. The good news is his love is not based on anything in you. His love is not motivated by anything he saw in you. His love is motivated purely by his own nature, which is love, and it doesn't change. That gives you a firm foundation to rest your feet on. He's loving. Why? Not because of me, but because of him. He is 
love. And he showed us his love by giving his son. Well, what did he give his son to do? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you, John. Propitiation. Now, this is not a word like the and and that's used every day. This is not a word like car or house where I say, hey, I bought a car, and you say, I know what you're talking about because you hear that word all the time. Propitiation is a word when you read it, you're like, come again? What did you just, I don't even know how to read that nor pronounce it, let alone know what it means. He sent his son to be the propitiation. What that word means is we have to take two steps back and understand sin and judgment. God is infinitely holy. He never sins. He's perfect in all of his being. And he says, if you want a relationship with me, you must be holy as I am holy. That's the standard. You and I aim. I want God. We have to be perfect. And guess what we do? We aim and we fall short. That's called sin. God is perfect. We are not. But in God's goodness, as a good judge, what does a good judge do? They execute justice on law-breaking. All of us are lawbreakers. We don't live up to the standard. Because of that, all of us in this room, if you're breathing, I can assure you, based on the scripture, that we deserve God's judgment. So over our heads hangs our sin and God's judgment. Propitiation is a great word of good news because it means this. When Jesus came, he took all your sin. He took all of God's wrath so that anyone who repents and believes will no longer stand condemned. Why? Not because God felt loving today. Not because God decided to be merciful and look the other way. But because the full demands of his justice have been met at the cross. Jesus Christ paid your debt in full. The wrath is removed. Your sin is dealt with. How? He didn't send an angel. He didn't send the best of men. He sent his only son. God loves you. How do I know that? Jesus bled and died for your soul. So that should do two, a couple of things for us. Keep in mind the context is love one another. It's in understanding the value of your soul before God that we start. And I'm not saying value like some God could not, he just thought about you all eternity long, like he couldn't live without you, he needed you. So it, No, he valued your soul. Why? Because he's love. He sent his son to purchase you. He loves you. He sent his son to give his lifeblood for you. Why? Because he loves you. And how does that help us love one another? Is that then gives me new lenses to look at each of us. Because if you are a Christian and I'm a Christian, regardless of how much we rub each other the wrong way, regardless of how different we think about this or that, I'm no longer looking at you as an annoyance. I'm looking at you as a blood-bought son or daughter just like me. 
is I begin to realize he loves me. And then I look at you and I'm like, I don't like when you do that. I don't think, I don't like when you do that. I think he loves him the same way he loves me. He loves that person as he loves me. That changes everything. See, one shade of difference in this paragraph is John is trying to give us a theological basis for our love. He roots it in who God is and what Jesus has done. And if you and I believe he did that for the other person, they go from an object of our annoyance, our bitterness, our hatred, to an object of our love. And that's what he does. He doesn't let, lay forth some guilt trip. He doesn't lay forth some 18-point step strategic plan to develop and implement love in the church. He says, I'm going to intentionally, consistently set forth Jesus. He believes that's a sufficient ground to change hearts and cause love one to another. Is in Christ. God loves you and the person in front of you, and the person behind you, and the person next to you, and the person on the other side of you. So it takes us from going here, I am loved, and I know this God of love, and then as I look this way, I say, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and it melts my heart towards them. We have different cultures in this church, as we've said. There may be things and times where we're like, when you do that, it really bothers me. There's no biblical basis for what's done or not done. It's, it's in seeing that Christ loves that person. that we say, rather than, why do you do that? We say, how can I understand you better? How can I love you better? Maybe there's people that come in here and they don't dress the way you think they should dress when they come to church. This kind of text takes us and says, rather than saying, why do they come dressed like that? Or why do they come dressed like this? It takes us and says, praise the Lord you're here. Praise the Lord my brother or my sister came in and I get to see them and love them because God loves them. It takes the person that you're like, they have a really strong personality. It just rubs me the wrong way. And rather than saying, why are they the way they are, it takes us and says, Lord, you love them. Help me love them. See how it, it, it reorients our vision of each other. When we look at each other through fleshly lenses, all we do is nitpick and prod, find fault, find reasons not to love each other. But when we understand God's love for us, it also applies to them. We love each other. But do you realize what this requires? That we first know God's love. That we first have come to know uh, that God loves us in Christ. To know that God did not send his son to be a propitiation so he could love us. He sent his son into the world to be a propitiation because he did love us. It's knowing Christ, the sin-bearing, wrath-satisfying Savior who loves unchangeably and infinitely that will then fuel love for each other. We need to keep in balance, though. This word propitiation, what it does for us, it perfectly satisfies 1 John 1, 5. God is light. He's perfect. No sin in him at all. And God is love. How can he be both? Jesus, who bears our sin. God is holy. He punishes sin. 
And God is love. He lets sinners go free. Perfectly satisfied. Perfectly in harmony. That then fuels and changes our love this way. So why should you love? Number one, because God is love. Why should you love? Number two, because God loves you. Well, why should you love? Number three, verses 11 and 12, because it displays God. The church's love for its own is a reflection of God's love. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Ephesians 5 will tell us in similar ways that we should imitate his love. We should be imitators of Christ. Well, in order to imitate, we have to have some basis of understanding what his love was. So just from this text, we can mine a couple of things out. Number one, his love is an initiating love. He didn't love us because we first loved him. He didn't wait for us to do enough good, loving, moral works to say, aha, now I'll love you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God initiated the love. We ought to love one another in that way. Rather than sitting back and stewing and say, they looked at the ground when I walked by them in the hall, I'm never talking to that person again. No, we initiate. Hey, is everything okay? I love you and I don't want there to be anything between us. We initiate reconciliation between each other. God's love was for us when we didn't love, we just think about this. The Creator loved creatures, sinful creatures. Ought not sinful creatures love sinful creatures? If the perfect God in heaven, who never sins, loves sinners, ought sinners who are also sinners love those like us? Secondly, so it's an initiating love. Secondly, it's a love for those who are different. We just said God is the creator. We are the creation. You don't get much more different than that. He loves those who are not exactly like him. He's perfect. We're not. Ought that not to then fuel our love for each other who are different? Hey, even if you are from the same culture, even if you have the same skin color, even if you're of the same socioeconomic bracket, guess what? Everybody's different. So if you need someone to be like you to love them, you will love no one. But God loves those who are not like him. So those who know his love ought to what? Love those who are not like us. Church should be a different place than the world where we need to be exactly like one another and think exactly the same and have the same views on all things in order for us to be worthy of love. No, the church is a place for sinners who are all hurting and broken. And by God's power, through his spirit, we are supernaturally enabled to love one another. So it's an initiating love. Secondly, it's a love that, that is for those who are different. His love, number three, was, for, was when it was not convenient for him. It wasn't like he said, hey, when is going to be a convenient time to send my son? When is going to be a convenient time for him to bear sin and die? It was inconvenient. Let that fuel our love for one another? When it doesn't fit into our schedules, it doesn't fit into our comforts, that we would love each other in an inconvenient, stretching way? Because that's how he loves us. 
forth. His love came at great cost and was tangible. He sent his only son. And what did his son do? Met our needs. There's no greater need for your soul than a savior. And he met the need by sending his son. Ought our love to be one that is tangible, that meets needs? When someone is in need of meals, sick, or just had a baby, that we would be the people who come along and say, hey, we can relieve you of having to cook. If somebody needs a ride, that we would be the people that don't say, Lord bless you today, hope you get a ride. No, that we would be people who say, I have a car and I have some time, can I give you a ride? That our love would actually meet needs. What happened in Acts 2 and Acts 4? The church is being formed, and those, are, those people are in need, and other people are selling what they have to what? Pad their pocket. No, to meet each other's needs. There's this radical kind of love in the church that is fueled by understanding who Jesus is and what he's done. So he continues. We'll end with this, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. So how am I supposed to know what he's like? You told me he's loving. Well, he says this phrase in another place, in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So John, in his Gospel, his answer is, oh, how do I know who God is? He says, look at Jesus. He's come to make God known. But when we get to 1 John, my question is, well, Jesus some 2,000 years ago, rose and ascended, and I've literally never physically seen Jesus. So if you tell me I need to look to Jesus to know God, yes, look to the scriptures and we'll find Christ. But, but where can I see him today? Where can I see his love? And First John's answer is in the church. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and love is perfected. Literally, it means to, to bring to full expression. God's love, his loving nature, is displayed in the love of his people. In your love to that person, and that person's love to you. The church ought to be a place where God's nature is put on display that we would look at each other and say, how do I know God loves? And we would say, look at how we treat each other. Or the world would come in and say, you say you have a God of love, well, how do you live? And they'd look in and see God on display among us. Francis Schaeffer, who's a, he's dead now, but a famous defender of the faith said this, we can use all these arguments, and we should, to defend like kind of philosophically the truth. But the ultimate defense of the truth is Christian love. That love is the ultimate display. We demonstrate God's nature when we care for one another's needs like we, they did in Acts 2 and Acts 4. We demonstrate God's love when we grieve with those who are grieving and don't forsake those in sorrow. We demonstrate God's love to each other and to the world when we rejoice with those who rejoice, even when it's hard. Consider. You've been waiting three years for a promotion at work, and somebody comes into prayer meeting and says, I got a praise report. I've been at this job for three weeks, and they just made me the associate manager. And you're like, I've been waiting for three years. And rather than being bitter that it wasn't you, that we rejoice 
with those who rejoice. That demonstrates God's love. When we forgive one another, those who have harmed us, rather than hardening our hearts, when we forgive one another, we put on display God's love to each other and to the world. When we speak the truth in love, we demonstrate God's love. When we, when we pray for one another, we put on display God's nature. When rather than gossiping and tearing each other down with our words, we build each other up, we put on display God's nature. Why should we love each other? Because God is love. Why should we love each other? Because he loves you. Why should we love each other? Because it displays God to the world. So, we started out by saying this. It's a broken record. It's a broken record because we don't fully get it. And when we do get it, we go out and we forget it. And John's like, you need to love one another. 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 Why? It's who God is. It's what he's done for you in Christ. It's how we should live one to another. Put God's nature on display by loving one another. Let's pray. Father, we come and we praise you for who you are. Apart from anything in your creation and how you relate to it, Father, you are love in and of yourself. You are the definition and source of love. We praise you that you have shown us your love in Christ by sending him into this world to die for our sin, to satisfy your wrath. And we praise you, Father, that we can demonstrate and display who you are by loving each other in this way. Father, we ask for grace. We ask for grace because we don't do this perfectly. And we ask for grace, Lord, that we would do it more consistently that we would put you on display not only to each other, but to a world in great need of a loving Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.